Hi, Jamie. Hello. How's it going? Okay? Yeah. It awesome. Works. Oh, I have to go. Yeah, first. you have to start. <laughs> oh, okay. Hi, Jamie. Hi. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I am a PhD candidate at Wayne State University. Um, I'm in the history department. And specifically, my focus of study uh, for my research is uh, kind of the intersection of queer history and the American labor movement. So my dissertation um, topic is this union caused the queer history of the United Auto Workers uh, specifically. So looking at how one of the largest industrial unions in American history kind of responded to and with uh, queer workers kind of the uh prior to during and then after the outset of like this very public and vocal uh gay liberation queer rights movement how'd you i mean was did you study sorry let me start again um <laughs> that's like a really specific topic so for our listeners because i mean ali and i know you so we know how you kind of got to that topic but um, how did that come about? Like, what was your master's, you know, focus and, and how'd you get here? Sure, sure. Um, well, I came to Detroit uh, to start graduate school back uh, like December of 2016. It was right off the heels of, of that election. So it was like a good time. Right. But um <laughs> I, uh, I knew that I wanted to go back to school and get my degree. Um, I think I was kind of an outlier because going into things like I don't get me wrong, like a teaching job is excellent and amazing to have. Um, but the market's not great. Um, I actually went in, uh, think like with the hope of going into some kind of labor organizing. Um, and so once I started, uh, studying history, I very quickly started, um, researching, uh, labor history specifically. And my master's degree, uh, which was in history, the final master's essay actually ended up being like a very shortened version of the dissertation I'm working on now. It was because I had this, uh, it was my first seminar class who, uh, with uh, Dr. Fow, who's now also my advisor. And she introduced me to the idea that like, women's uh, history and the history of sexuality and gender um, could intersect like with other aspects of history. And that was something I was entirely unfamiliar with. Like I knew that um, at the time I like knew that gay and lesbian people, LGBTQ people had a history. Um, I had taken some history classes in my undergrad and that had always been incredibly interesting to me. But it kind of being taken as a serious like historical focus was something that I wasn't aware of up until that time. And so she challenged me like, Hey, if you want to look into labor history uh, and if you know, you know a lot about the UAW and you're really interested in looking at the UAW, how about you look at how the UAW has represented um, gay and lesbian workers. And so that started off actually as a seminar paper, like one of these very short 25 to 30 page uh, research papers that you end up writing. And I was like, I went around and I talked to like some research archivists to some librarians. And I was very quickly told like, you're not going to find anything. Um, there's nothing there, right? The UAW is a very kind of family values, masculine blue collar man's man union. 
Um, and so if there was uh, if there was kind of any sort of intersection, they would have tried to downplay it or pretend it didn't exist at all. And what I found out in my research is that that's entirely not the case. The UAW has like a very extensive queer history. And so once I found out about that and I started reading what was available in the literature, uh, I was just hooked. And so I wanted to basically, um, I guess, follow that line of inquiry out to its fullest. And so that's why I ended up doing my master's focus on uh, just kind of an overview of the UAW's history there. Cool. I, yeah, it's interesting that you kind of started that conversation with talking about how you were, you learned along the way about like the intersection of history, whereas like a lot of times it does get, you know, segmented and like, oh, it's like someone only studies like women and gender or only studies, you know, LGBT, you know, related to that. Or those things might be related, but then you're not going to study those people aren't going to necessarily study labor or unions. And right. so finding the cross section in there is really interesting. And yeah, because when you have, and I think a lot of times in higher academia, you have kind of this siloing that doesn't really reflect reality that well, right? Um, if you're into military history, there's like a very uh, heavy kind of, um, a heavy kind of disciplinary push to just stay talking about battles and military tactics and like these changes over time. And you know, it's very hard to find someone who says, all right, well, how can we look at military history from, you know, the point of view of like a gendered analysis or from like the, the aspect of like post-structuralism? Um, there is uh, obviously someone in our cohort who is working on military history and its intersection with gender. She's amazing. Um, but yeah, like the idea that you could look at that you could kind of break away from this siloing that we see in higher ed and looking like, all right, so we know about labor history and you know about these other topics so what um the real world applications of like what happens when you ask those kinds of questions was great oh okay i mean i just was gonna say like i wonder if that comes out of like um you know in the u like since modern u.s is like the most common thing that people study you know you almost have to you have to find the unique angle and you have to do something that no one else is doing. Whereas like, you know, if you're like, if you study like just the history of like Israel or like Palestine, you could just say one of those things and everyone's like, Oh, okay, cool. But like if you're a modern U S historian, people are like, but, but what do you study? But what in modern U S history, but what specific nugget of history in that one pocket at that one time period are you studying? I, uh, a couple of days ago, I saw a pretty funny comic online. It was, um, what's your research focus? And the person says, uh, 2020 from July to October. The response yeah. was, that's a little bit broad. Like, what are you looking at specifically? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So like when you started doing like this type of research after you got, you know, responses from like the archivists and librarians that you weren't going to like find anything, how did find things like what was like your research process like how did you know maybe like decode the archive or like decode what you were reading or like you know looking for those nuggets of like you know history in like a large archival collection ultimately a lot of what i had to end up doing was looking at those primary sources in the archive and asking 
um, these questions of like, okay, so where was X subject matter, right? Um, so when you look at uh, contract bargaining proceedings between like the UAW and like Briggs Automotive or something, and they have lines in there about, um, you know, work conditions, amount of hours, amount of pay, like we have this assumption that the American worker is this very kind of like normative individual, right? Um, a lot of history, uh, even today, with all of these intersections, unfortunately, they privilege uh, white, straight um, men, cisgendered men, obviously, uh, is kind of like this de facto individual. And so when you're reading these documents, there's that tendency to be like, oh, okay, these are the people they're representing, which isn't the case. So whenever you're reading these archival documents, you have to ask, all right, where are the women workers? Where are uh, workers from different racial backgrounds? And in my specific case, it's where are uh, queer auto workers? And the actual archives, like depending on the collection you're looking at, can be like a really great treasure trove, or there could just be nothing there and you could be sifting through boxes and there's not going to be anything there. A big part of the research process that actually helped guide my archival research was uh, conducting oral histories, either like listening to others who had conducted them or, or doing my own. Mm. Um, in a lot of cases, I've had to listen to histories that were conducted by, you know, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarily, if that's but uh, like in the early 90s, right? So like some of the people who were in like the, the sit down strikes in the 30s who did interviews in the, in the late 80s aren't alive today. And so, you know, you have to listen to those uh, to those interviews and kind of pick out like uh, hints that they leave behind in their in their testimony. But also, like, I wouldn't be able to do the research I do now if it weren't for the auto workers who are alive today, who are able to say, like, yeah, I hired into Chrysler in in 1985 and someone threatened to cut my head off because I'm a lesbian. Like getting those stories um, is kind of crucial. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, because I knew you'd done some oral histories. And so when you, it could go two ways, right? Like you, you could have like gotten led to a person and you have an interview with them and, you know, and you have your notes and everything from that. And that leads you to something in the archive, or you could be in the archive and see a document or a pamphlet or something. And it mentions a person and then you have to seek that person out right has it happened both ways for you for finding these people it has yeah um so one of the earliest books i read one of the most comprehensive ones i've found on like just queer labor history at all like there's you know the big book that i can think of is miriam frank has a book called out in the union and so she looks at american labor history kind of like holistically over its hundred and hundred to two hundred years and kind of provides an account um, of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender workers. So it's a, it's a very sweeping survey. It's kind of like this cornerstone. And throughout her text, she would make references to UAW members. And I would seek them out in the archives. And then based on information I found there, reach out to them. Um, mm. I did a lot of research on one auto worker named Gary Kapanowski, who led a wildcat strike in the 70s um, when... Briggs uh, Beautywear, which was kind of like this holdover of an earlier automotive company, they were going to close their plant with no notice, just lock up everything and, and build a new plant down south. Well, the workers mm -hmm. found out this was going to happen. And so he led a, a wildcat initiative to like basically make sure the company just didn't leave all these workers without pensions or anything. 
um, he was gay. And there were opponents in the union who, you know, as a strategy to make sure he didn't win their election because they would, you know, kind of be out of their sweetheart deals if he did, you know, outed him at work and Mm. accosted him, harassed him, um, attacked him. And so, like, after first reading about him in Miriam Frank's book and then following up with all these archival documents, as it would be like, wow, there's actually an incredible story here. And in fact, all of the workers of that plant, instead of kind of like falling victim to this anti-gay bashing, rallied around him. Um, he gets excused from his job and he goes into kind of clear out his, his locker and get his toolbox the next day. And every worker's out in the parking lot saying, you know, we're not going to go in until you reinstate him. So there are like there were a lot of incidents of kind of like normative worker and queer worker solidarities that like once you know where to look in the archives, and you're able to kind of like definitely build off the work of earlier historians who like do the initial uncovering. You're able to be like, well, look at like all of these other aspects um, involved here. Then it's you're able to realize there's a lot going on and I should reach out to this person at other times. Um, it could be kind of a it could be kind of um like you don't expect it um i actually took a class with a professor at wayne state um his name's michael schmidt he does a a queer theory class in the women um gender department program and uh he introduced us to a lot of uh, a lot of materials in that class and i ended up finding out about leslie feinberg um, Leslie Feinberg was a huge transgender activist. She was um, involved in unionizing efforts and on the left until she eventually passed away in 2015. And I thought she was just incredible. So I started reading her book. She has kind of like a, it's an autobiography, but not really an autobiography. It's like based on her life called Stone Butch Blues. That's just, I cannot tell you how heart-wrenching this book is. It's amazing if you ever want to read it. Um, but she also wrote uh, books about queer theory, about like transgender rights and like how they interact with uh, the healthcare system. Um, and she, like I found out as I was reading her, her books was in the UAW. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she was a part of UAW local 1981, which represented uh, freelance writers and authors in the United States. And she was kind of one of these pioneering advocates who fought against like bioessentialist feminism or what we call TERFs today. In the 90s, mm-hmm. she was uh, picketing like the Michigan Women's Festival, which had a very kind of strict trans exclusion policy. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, she did eventually die in 2015. And since then, during Pride, like the UAW's Facebook page will actually like post a picture of her during June to kind of like commemorate her. And so, like, these sorts of connections that aren't widely known, you can uncover and then realize, like, oh, actually, like, I can't interview Leslie Feinberg now, but I know to, like, kind of investigate her text more closely and look for, you know, whereas in the archives, I can look for the queer history and the labor. Here, I can look for the labor and the queer history. So it does definitely Um, go both ways. Nice. When you reach out to people... um do you find that most people are willing to talk to you or have you come across, you know, people that just prefer not to, for whatever reason? Um, what I've come to find is that people who don't want to talk to you usually aren't found. 
Um, okay. You know, they just like, they know enough uh, based on like enough people contacting them that this is how they're finding me. And so they can kind of cover up their tracks. I have not reached out to someone and made contact with them and them having like, have behaved like absolutely not never call here again. Um, you know, depending on their work schedule or like what the project is about, they might kind of be a little wary of it, um, which I'm always super respectful of, but I've never, like people are usually willing um, to share their experiences if, if you can, you know, uh, assure them that, you know, this isn't a hit piece. I'm not out to make you look bad because there's a lot of that going on when, when they were in the labor movement. Right. Right. The, yeah. Their queerness would be something that was seen as a negative. And it's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm actually trying to, um, explain how, like by challenging those things, you strengthen the labor movement. And once that initial kind of point is made, uh, I haven't really had anyone, say absolutely not i'm not talking to you that's good i will say like in my experience that's usually how my research starts is it's like i i know vaguely what i'm looking for and then it's like you know i find things and then it's like these breadcrumbs that you like follow through hundreds of boxes in the archive and I think people are like you can't look through that many boxes and it's like I'm never gonna be able to tell this story that I want to tell if I don't commit myself to digging through all of these boxes I mean when I was writing my master's essay I was writing on this nurse anesthetist who was at the University of Michigan for 30 plus years and you know even though she was there for 30 plus years and she was part of the medical school and she did all of that work you know there's maybe like 10 to like 20 pieces of paper with her name on it and I looked through I want to say like five collections being like 50 plus boxes. And it's just, you have to do that work or you're never going to find what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually um, the most recent uh, project that I did before I jumped into comprehensive exams, which that was fun, but uh, <laughs> the most recent research project that I was really getting involved with, I wanted to kind of uh, build on this claim that was made in um in gay and lesbian and queer history more recently that world war ii was kind of this coming out moment for america's lgbt population right a lot of times we look at like stonewall which happened in 1969 is this like the emergence of this gay liberation movement but there was a like kind of these interlocking groups of uh pro homophile activism in the u.s dating back to like the 1930s and 40s and so um, a lot of historians have come out and said, well, it was actually World War II that served to like convince, like make a lot of Americans realize that they might not be straight because they were leaving these small knit communities, which were like overly policed by like elders and peers. And they were going to these like large cities and they were uh, kind of in these uh, homosocial environments where it's just like you and a lot of other men going out into Europe and, you know, things happen there. Um, but the problem I kept running into and something that really bothered me is that all of these narratives were about like soldiers, like male soldiers, male dock workers, right? Longshore men. And I'm like, well, you know, growing up, we had a poster of Rosie the Riveter in the basement. Like where, what about women? Um, yeah. And so I started just kind of digging through sources at random. And I actually found a, I reached out to a professor of gay and lesbian history at MSU. His name's Tim Retzloff. And I said, hey, have you ever heard about, you know, women in the UAW? And he 
you know, sent me a page um, from his dissertation where he had one interview and the interviewee offhand said that this one woman in the UAW uh, was a lesbian and that she was kind of treated poorly for it. I'm like, well, that's interesting. I'm going to follow up. And uh, kind of chasing those sources, uh, going through her personal papers in the Ruther, I wasn't able to find much at first, right? Um, Olga Madar, who was in charge of the, the recreation department, fought to desegregate like bowling clubs in, in Detroit. She sought to basically uh, challenge these uh, racially restrictive covenants established by homeowner associations in places like Indian Village and Boston Edison. And I was I was not seeing anything that would have suggested that she lived, uh, you know, that she was in the life was the term or that she had a Boston marriage. There were all these ways to like refer to those types of relationships until. Yeah. yeah until I got to one of the last folders in her collection. So I had gotten through every other folder. And one of these last folders is all of the cards that were sent to her partner after she had died by members in the union saying like, hey, we know you two are really close. Reach out to us if you need anything. You know, we know you loved each other and we're here for you. And once I was able to find that material, I was able to say, okay, well, I know this person was Olga Madar's partner. And so going back through the collections, I'm like, okay, here are the connections. Here's where they met. Here's where they, you know, had their anniversary dinner on Belle Isle one year. And uncovering that was like, it's hard to put into words sometimes um, because you, you are realizing that you're finding something out that has been forgotten by a lot of people. Yeah. When you're, I know that you just finished your comps and stuff and you're teaching right now too, but when you're conceiving of your dissertation, do you see yourself, because there's so many, personal stories that you you have uncovered or been led to or you know been shown do you see it as a like a narrative that you're gonna like weave through like are you know there's there's all these different ways you can write like a book about history and and some are more dry than others and everyone has their own proclivities but you know i could very easily see you tracing like these stories with it even if the story didn't last the whole dissertation but like a chapter and so you start with her like if you've got a chapter on whatever the subject is that relates to her and like weave her story through all the other facts and things about labor and lgbt history but like her story is like a through fair do you think of that or are you going a different way so one of the oh yeah when are you starting like time wise like that's my well that that's kind of like yeah. mine too is like what sure. like where like what's the time frame so the UAW was officially founded in 1935 um i'm probably going to start around the 1920s uh because there were earlier attempts to organize the automotive industry um they're worth looking at uh, so, you, you know, you have things like the Ford Hunger March, uh, which wasn't affiliated with the UAW. The UAW came a couple years after that. But it's still kind of like it's the it's the queer history of United Auto Workers. So I, I would start before 1935. But one of the things I really love about labor history, kind of at odds with some of the histories that I read when I was an undergrad, right? When I was an undergrad, I ended up going into English language and literature and not history because so much of it was date memorization, right? The Treaty of Tordesillas was this date and it did this thing and these were the people who negotiated it. Let's move on, right? Um, 
in labor history, there's two different types of history. There's the old labor history and there's the new labor history. And the old labor history is very much like this factual chronological account. The international brotherhood of men who uh, packed boxes into larger boxes went on this strike on these dates and it involved these many workers and they lost because the governor shot someone. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> that, there it is. Um, new labor history tries to move away from that very kind of chronological, like this, then this, then this, like date, date, date type of structure and says, all right, so you have all of these records of these different, um, of these different negotiations, of these different unions, of these elections. What does that tell us about the, about the experiences of the working class, right? What does that tell us about the people who lived at the time? And that was one of the reasons I went into English language and literature because I was always interested about how people lived in the past but I just wasn't able to see that in the kind of introductory history courses I ever took. It was, here's the dates that you need for the exam. And once I started to get into new labor history and I started to see these stories where, you know, an unlikely person who you don't expect to, to take on these challenges and to like lead or like support these different organizing efforts, you know, once you start to include this history from, from below that like, humanizes people who were like kind of intrinsically kind of pushed to overlook that kind of matched up very well with uh why i went into english language and literature and that was to kind of uncover the the lives of queer people who we overlook hmm. um so i think that when i think about a narrative i think that if a history doesn't have a narrative if you don't like look at the lived realities of people, then it kind of, it doesn't have, you don't gain as much from it because you can't put yourself in those circumstances. And if you can't put yourself in those circumstances, it's a lot harder to pull lessons from those events, right? So like this strike happened and it ended this way, doesn't teach you as much as these people came together despite all these differences. And this is how they overcame their differences to win uh, a fight together once you kind of humanize those people and you realize that you could just as easily be in that situation, you have so much more of a, of a respect for that history. Also, yeah, the really dry history is just boring and who wants to read that anyway, right? Like make it public facing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that that's a dialogue that's going on right now. And I think it's even something that, you know, graduate students struggle with, with like their advisors and like faculty members is just, like, you know, you, when you came through, you could write boring and people wanted you to write boring and that was great. And that was fine. But now if you write, if I wrote like a book as dry as like some of like, you know, these older books, I would be like, you know, they'd be like, nope, I'm sorry. You can't, you can't do this. And like, and I think that it's just because we're trying now and I, and I think that this is right and it's in the right direction. We're cognizant now that our history needs to matter, not just to those of us in academia or like, you know, who have master's degrees or graduate degrees. It needs to relate to Joe Schmo, who just walked into the bookstore at Barnes and Noble and sees your book and says, oh, hey, this looks really interesting. Right, right. And I think there is some of that, but it's kind of disproportionate right now. What mm -hmm. I want to see is labor historians push the presidential biographies out of the market. I'm very tired of going to my friend's homes and seeing X number of coffee table biographies on George Washington. We need more on Walter Ruther and Bill Haywood. You know, I think though, like, um, it's like they could really be taking a hint and like, I think historians could take the lead from, 
journalists and reporters because there's a reason that Hidden Figures blew up because it, it was well-written, it was so accessible, and it was interesting. And I think that historians spend so much time trying to, you know, focus on, you know, they don't tell their priority. They're like trying to cite their sources and they're trying to do their homework and they're trying to know, say, this is why we're advancing the field of labor. And it's like, stop focusing on that. Why don't you focus on engaging? And especially like labor is such an important field because, you know, people, I mean, Republicans are trying so hard to push out labor that it's like, we need to remind the people why labor is so great and why it matters. And the way we can do this is by telling these amazing stories that exist that make people go, hey, well, unions matter. So yeah, yeah, union, the, I don't think, I would, I would say most people our age have no concept of like unions and the history of labor in the United States and like why we have, you know, weekends and why we have certain requirements that you know that there have to be fire exits and things like that and and it, there's a lot of reasons but like modern day reasons are going to be you know people needed you know people who had union jobs and had good jobs and got the suburban life their children went on to get more white collar jobs or you know you know we have like tourism industry and those things like changed how people related to what work was. And so now people have, they either, there are definitely people who have people in their lives who, who have no, no one in their life was ever in a union or like, you know, going forward or like, you, you know, and now it's really hard to be, for unions to exist in the state of Michigan, let alone the rest of the United States. And it's crazy to think that like, Michigan is where it is right now, considering the amazing labor history we have with the auto workers and Ruther and, and others and in the teaching union that was so strong here. Yeah. I would it say is, a lot of people our age don't know. It's true. Yeah. I actually, um, one of the lecture I just finished up recording, uh, I talked, uh, pretty, you know, briefly, but I gave some consideration to the battle of Blair mountain and not a lot of people know that battle, but it was, uh, you know, a decade before the bombing of Gornica that Picasso made famous um, the U.S. government had dropped incendiary bombs on striking miners. It was the first instance where bombs were dropped from a plane onto people. And it happened in, in the U.S., in the Appalachians, in the coal fields. And when we forget that history, it makes us liable to repeat it. You know, right. we can talk about the Triangle Shirtwaist fire and how you can't lock the doors to a factory to keep your workers from taking an extra bathroom break. But if people don't keep that in mind, well, you know, then in the 80s, when you have a chicken nugget factory in the South go up in, pot, in flames and the same thing happens where they had locked the, the factory shut, you know, so that people weren't stealing chicken nuggets, um, you just have a repeat of that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at today's like gig economy, there's so much emphasis placed on, you know, the right of a worker to work as much as they want. No one working for Uber gets away with an eight-hour day, right? right. Eight-hour strikes that were so prominent during the progressive era are something that a lot of Americans today don't have the luxury of. And it's because the labor movement is so diminished now. Yeah. I was just speaking with a friend um, about, you know, working in other countries or when Americans go and, or like I interned in England for a summer and our concept of work 
is so different too than other like other similar countries that have similar you know histories and and labor movements but like they went you know they're still capitalists but they just went a little different way than we did and like we have no concept like when you go to lunch it should be lunchtime. It should, it should be your lunchtime to like relax and go, or, you know, if you're, if you're having dinner after work, even with your colleagues in other countries, other places, they stop talking about work. Like, even if that's the only thing you have in common, they're going to bring up sport or other things because you're not at work anymore. But when Americans enter those workplaces in other, in other places, all we know how to do is talk about work. And that is, is not good for a society if all your people know how to do is talk about work and think about work and and then the technology with the emails coming home with you on your phone or whatever it is and regardless of what kind of job you do even if you work at a uh, like a I was working briefly at a like a swim school and they send emails regularly about reminding us of things it's like it's an hourly job teaching kids to swim I really don't want an email from you on a regular basis <laughs> And then you have, yeah, these contract stipulations where it's like you have to respond to emails in 24 hours. It's like you have me here three days a week. I'm not going to check my email on Sunday. Right. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I know we're uh, on a podcast and so the people listening can't see me, but like I was nodding my head very enthusiastically through that. (laughs) Wanted to point that out. Well, I don't know. I think it's just true. Like, um, one of my friends, like, they're, like, an adjunct teacher. And, like, that's something that the school insists goes in the contract. But it's, like, you know, that you're going to respond in 24 hours. But, like, like you just said, it's, like, you're paying me $2,000, like, for four months worth of work, which is definitely going to be more than 40 hours a week. Like, you're paying me absolute crap. And, like, you expect me to be this committed to this thing? Seriously? But that's not just, like, a teaching problem. That's a all jobs problem and like that's why it's so annoying now you know like with like dealing with like you know sometimes like your your parents like your grandparents and it's just like it might be nice to have been able to go immediately from high school to the factory where you had a good union job and you could afford your lake house and then your house in the city and your two cars and that must be really nice and i'm not buying a house guys because i can't afford a house right right And, you know, there is something to be said for as hard as factory work is like I've Mm -hmm. I had my brief stints of it. And I'm very glad that I have the job that I have today. Right. Because I don't go home with my with my knuckles bleeding anymore. Um, But every American worker works incredibly hard. The amount of the degree of productivity of the American worker is astronomically high. Yeah. um, When you look at it in comparison to previous years and. So many of us are so underpaid. We we desperately need the kind of union representation that they did have back then, because back then, if you did that kind of hard work, you got compensated for it. And it's right. not so much the case today. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And like and and within the industry that Ali and I kind of are in, in 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 libraries and stuff, academic or otherwise, it's well known that everyone is very underpaid and because we're not like a, a licensed profession, we're, we're a profession, right? You have to have a certain degree to do the job, but we're not licensed. So there's, there's people that claim titles that don't necessarily have those titles and there's not really pro- like protections in that sense. 
And then at the same time, there's also not protections for like what you should be making, despite the fact that you went and have a master's degree to do this job. The, the, the pay, as I was looking for jobs was just, it's mm -hmm. just criminal. Like it's insane mm -hmm. to think. About, and like most jobs you get, you can't even get a full-time job. So then there's no benefits. And then you can't, you can barely afford to buy yourself your health insurance. Health insurance tied to it, whether you have a job or not is absolutely crazy. Yeah, because, you know, because these uh, companies that can present themselves as marginally progressive that sell, you know, various forms of coffee. I won't name names. I don't want to get you in any hot water. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, like they have, you know, they have this image that they provide their workers with uh, health care. But that health care means, you know, you have to work 30 hours a week. And if you're not reporting into shifts that are really undesirable and you didn't agree to work to to start with, if you don't report to those anyway, well, suddenly you're doing 29 hours a week. Now that health care is gone. Right. And so there's a whole other form of coercion you get with mm. that. And also like for. With regards to like library work with like teaching professions one of the things that like it can be so difficult to stress to people who are kind of unaware of like workplace discrimination or like kind of these systematic uh forms of injustice that kind of pervade the economy is that a lot of work that is really hard like library work like teaching that demands like a lot of hours and a lot of mental acumen is underpaid because they're pink collar right this idea that, you know, it's a white collar job. It requires a lot of technical skill, like you said, a master's degree. But because it's majority women that work in that profession, it's undervalued, like all reproductive labor is. Right. Right. Yeah. I will say, I think something that plagues like libraries and archives as like a profession is that there's not one profession wide union. It's like if you if you're like at a public library, you might be represented by AFSCME or like, you know, but if you're at like a university, it might be AAUP or like, you know, or the UAW or any or other thing or well, or nothing. Yeah. And I think that that's the problem is that, you know, there needs to be a collective decision that we're all going to stick together. We're all going to do it together. Yeah. And like and like but there hasn't been. And maybe it's because, you know, people think, oh, it wouldn't work. Or maybe it's because, you know, they for whatever reason that they're not doing it. But that's what needs to happen. Well, I would think and and Jamie can speak more to this and and Allie, too, because you guys both study labor. But I would think that it, it that's that's the point. Right. They keep you so busy with your head down trying to support yourself or your family or whatever it is. Keep that health care that you don't have the time or the wherewithal to organize or to find out how to organize or find out how to join a union or what it looks like. And like, so if you're kept so busy that you can't do, and it's not necessarily always a conscious decision by the people in charge, right? They're part of, you know, being kept busy too. Um, but it, it's like a subconscious, like if, you, if you're stuck working on this, like, like a treadmill and you're focused on what you're doing in front of you and you get little, you know, bread and circuses and little things here and there, little perks or whatever that keep you docile, then you can't go out and organize and, and find people to be organizers and, and do, and, and then, and if you do, then you, you know, you, then the intimidation comes and the blackballing and blacklisting and things like that. I will say that I think part of it is because instead of thinking all of, all of us as archivists or all of us as librarians, 
people are like, well, I don't care what's going on in that corporate library because I'm a public librarian. Yeah, yeah, or I, I don't happens. care what's going on at that museum archives because I'm a, you know, whatever, yeah. library, like a, like a college university librarian. And it's like, we all went through the same program. We all did the same thing. Yeah. Like we're all more alike than you think we are. So stop thinking about you. But and yeah, like, it's those, it's those blinders. But it's just working. It's also part of organization. If you like, the reason that national healthcare doesn't exist is really because the American Medical Association and the American Hospital Association can hold a lot of sway. Mm. And it, and until the Society of, of Archivists or, and the American Library Association decides, hey, we're not going to take it anymore. Yeah. And collectively, we're all going to lean in. It's not going to happen. Right. Well, I know this kind of goes to like, Jamie, you don't just study this stuff. You work within the realm of being in a union and, and representing people in a union. Also, yes. Um, so I am uh, currently the vice president of the AFT Local 6123. So that's the Graduate Employees Organizing Committee. It represents um, graduate teaching, graduate uh, student assistance on Wayne State's campus. Um, because of uh, our wonderfully uh, pro-labor TM, National Labor Relations Board, we can't represent research assistance. This weird uh, argument that because these students are working on research, it's for their own benefit, even though they're working on someone else's research. That's beside the point. We do try and represent GRA concerns when we can, even though they don't necessarily pay us dues. Um, but yeah, we've I've been uh, pretty active there, obviously. Um, this summer has been, I did not get to go camping as much as I wanted, but that's fine. <laughs> We've been making a lot of progress uh, addressing graduate workers' concerns, at least. Um, like, for example, uh, do you remember a couple weeks ago when we got the letter from DOSO that said we we're allowed to return to our offices on campus? Mm -hmm. That was actually, we didn't publicize it as such, but that was a GEOC win. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of students who were expected to continue working from home. Campus was going to remain closed. Uh, but a lot of people don't have the internet bandwidth to support Zoom, right? Um, not without shelling a lot, out a lot more money for greater speeds. Right. Or, you know, they might be living in an environment where they're in too close quarters to, like, do their work effectively and have, like, their own, like, workspace that they can depend on. And so we brought that and a lot of other concerns to the university, and we've been, like, bargaining on these memorandums of understanding that are winning us, you know, rights to return to offices if we need them, whereas before we were denied those. Oh, me? Okay. Um, <laughs> what advice, so like, you know, you've kind of told us what made you want to pursue like a graduate degree in history. So what advice would you give to people who are thinking about it? Because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I, I assume that because the job market sucks right now, a lot of people are going to go back to grad school like they did in the Great Recession of 2008. So, like, what would you tell people thinking about it? Um, for going back to grad school in general, I would say to. If you're just going back for a job and you're not going back for, like, something that you want to, like, you know, I'm really dedicated to this and I want to live my life for it type of career, if you're going back for gainful employment, it's worth uh, researching the kind of um, the kind of assets your degree is going to give you. Um, but if you're going into the humanities and you're just like you are dedicated to um, 
to making like uh, your work, your career, like a more like central aspect of your life, I would say that you should uh, keep in mind that the job market is really tight and you should uh, temper your expectations there. I was listening um, when you had uh, Katie Parks on, she made a really good point that a lot of people, especially uh, people of privilege, will enter academic circles assuming that they have a pathway to a professorship set out for them. And that's just not the case, right? You might uh, do very well getting a, a degree in history or English or sociology, but if there's no jobs out in, the, out in the labor market for that, you need to be willing to do other kinds of work that's not immediately related to your focus of study. So like I might look at um, queer labor history in the, in the UAW. And while I would love to just teach that seminar class uh, at Harvard, like once every fall, realistically, I have to say, well, it's probably more likely once I'm done with school, I'm going to go into labor organizing. And if I have the opportunity to set up um, education workshops or like, you know, any sort of uh, labor trainings, you know, I'd love to do that. But Tempering your expectations and kind of making sure that when you're out of your program, you have a, a pathway to a job that you're going to like is important. So much of graduate school isn't just the degree. It's also the networking and the, and the skill building, too. For sure. I think um, especially like if you're. I guess just overall people, I hate it when people say, oh, I hate networking. It's like, do it. You don't have to like it. It's just, it's so required in the humanities. And I think I would say any field. It's like, if you know someone who knows, you know, someone else, like, and they can connect with that person and say, oh, hey, you know, you know, Jamie, what's Jamie like? Is Jamie great? Should I hire Jamie? Like, like that'll immediately get you like, you know, a leg up on other people, whether it's fair or not, you know, you're presenting yourself, you're advocating for yourself that's going to put you a little bit further ahead. Well, and I think, you know, I love, I love a good metaphor. Um, sticking with like the idea of, of uh, labor and, and business and industry, networking comes from, you know, the business side of things. And it's very, it, it does kind of have that like icky feel about it, right? Of like, you know, putting on the suit and, and, and shaking the person's hand and like having this like facade. So I think that, but if you look at organizing and, and grassroots movements, that's what, it's the same concept, but it's, it's a much more welcoming approach to things. It's, it's a friendly thing. Like the way organizing works, if you, I mean, I know mostly about the 60s is like where I'm familiar with. So like that was people who knew people who were friends and they said, oh, this person over here in, in Ann Arbor, Detroit, or East Lansing, wherever is doing this thing, you should meet up with him. Oh, they're going to go on that bus down, down South. You should ride with us. Like that it's, it's the same concept, but I think it's a much more um, like friendly way of going about it. So like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to network. I want to organize. I want to organize myself into a job or whatever. You know, I think that especially if you're dealing with people in the humanities or people who are very academic and might be on a, quiet or shy side of things that networking feels like you have to put yourself out there whereas if you approach it the other way it's it's like you can almost put someone else out there like i i often function in that position i often connect people and it's not that i don't know people or haven't been introduced to people but i'm like oh you do that thing jamie does that thing let me yeah. give you jamie's number 
and like it, it doesn't diminish me yeah you know it's you know I just think I think people think about it and like they think about you know the icky backroom politics politics type thing and it's not like that you know a lot of people in the humanities had a mentor who helped them connect with other people. And so think of it as an opportunity that you're looking for a mentor. And then later on, you're going to be the mentor and you're going to be helping people meet people. And and kind of the, exactly the way you just said that you do it is it doesn't have to be icky. If it's icky, it's in your head. Yeah. Or it's like, you know, I like it's the imposter syndrome. It's like, I don't feel like I deserve to be here. Therefore, I'm not going to take advantage of these things right. because people just want to help you. Everyone in the humanities I've found wants to help everyone most everyone <laughs> i would say most yeah sometimes that that help comes a little hard-handed but it, it's constructive um but yeah i think a lot of that is it's it can be imposter syndrome or it can be this kind of aversion to uh to networking as like this back room thing but so much of that is just internalized right we're told that if we're advocating ourselves or like if we're trying to um, if we're trying to get into a, a career that we want to do that it's, you know, if we if we go that route of things, it's ultimately dishonest. And that's not true. Like human beings are social creatures and it's not like it's necessarily shady. Sometimes networking just means you're introduced to people you wouldn't have met before. Yeah. Yeah. That's a time management question. I mean, we have to manage our time. So. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay, Jamie, our last two questions. What are you currently binge watching on TV? Ooh, so um, I'm not swearing because it's the name of a family, uh, but Shit's Creek is uh, season six just dropped on Netflix. So I'm halfway through that. I started it last night. So that halfway is, is something. It's, um, but I'm... It, it's great. I finished it. It's great. I'm looking forward to finishing it. I'm loving it so far. God, David. Anyway, um, <laughs> so it, it, that's that's a big one. Um, I've also uh, I'm kind of a big Trekkie. Um, just there's just something about a society where we're not commodified as individuals. I really love that. Um, I have never seen Star Trek Enterprise, so I'm going through that one. Nice. It's different. I understand why it's not a favorite, but I'm still enjoying it. <laughs> that's good those are good what about you Allie you've been binge watching anything um I I loved cold case when I was younger like that tv show not like it's like the actual like procedural drama yeah that that one yeah and I found it for free online so I watched three episodes last night and I'm feeling like a binge is in my future and I'm trying to rein it in but that's what I'm watching right now nice yeah I um finished Shit's Creek uh it was great it made me cry it was great um and then uh my friend and i we're almost we have one episode left of pen 15 on hulu so we've been watching that um and I, I watch a lot of television so i've just been watching old seinfeld episodes and then curb your enthusiasm it's been a lot of curb your enthusiasm it's great oh yeah it's really good so i've been watching that stuff you've been reading anything for fun jamie Oh, for fun. Um, let me think. <laughs> I actually uh, got two books in uh, the mail earlier this week, and they're not technically like immediately related to my research. One's a collection of uh, documents about the Stonewall Uprising, 
So it's like a reader. I've been flipping through that. It's really interesting seeing kind of like these discussions going back and forth. Like none of it's dissertation related. Like I'm not going to quote this stuff in my in my research. So I can say that. Um, I love a lot the way of, that you had to lot... go out of your way to qualify that. Like you're like, you're like, it's not technically related to my research. Not technically. Right, right. I might lean on it a bit, but, you know, it might not be direct quotable. <laughs> Most of the time, um, if I'm not reading for, uh, if I'm not reading for research, it's usually podcasts. There is one exception though. I've, um, and I'm not recommending this to anyone, but I have a friend who I share an audible account with and every month we alternate between who gets to pick the book and he wasn't picking a book. So I'm like, just pick one. He's like, no, I I don't know what I want. I'm like, just pick one. It's going to be October soon. And so he finally got, uh, Testaments. Um, the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale and boy howdy listening to that coming up on this election was not good for my mental health yeah it's wait until like you know a Biden win November 4th before you start it because it is not a good zeitgeist to be reading that book in right now yeah it's on my bookshelf sitting here so yeah Um, I've been reading if you guys like um, fantasy academia and uh <laughs> um and uh yale i'm reading ninth house um by leah bardugo so they had the national um festival of books was like on pbs like two weeks ago and um she came up as like you know this new younger author and i heard her about this book so it's if the um the landed societies of Yale. So skull and bone is like the most famous, but then there's other ones. Um, so if they actually all had like a specific type of like magic they could do. And then there's the ninth house um, that's like meant to kind of curtail them. And this girl, her name is um, galaxy Stern. And uh, she is from the wrong side of everything. And she ends up, she has some special powers. So she ends up being sent to Yale to work in this ninth house. And she uncovers all these plots. And it's a lot about privilege, a lot about, there's a lot of stuff about gender in it. And then the author is like Israeli. And so she throws in like random, like Jewish mysticism. And like, she talks about the Ladino language, which like, you never, I never, I don't even know if you guys know what that is, but like, you never hear people talk about that. So I was like, the little... Jewish part of me was like oh this is really interesting like it's not part of the story really but it's thrown in there so it's really fun so the ninth house takes it takes place at Yale and she does a really good job talking about lots of stuff but it's fantasy really good (laughs) just trying to convince someone else to read it so I could talk to them about it I mean you still haven't read little fires everywhere I know it's I requested the audiobook I it's it's on my list oh man you reading anything um kind of I mean, I'm, I've been trying to read the Chronicles of Narnia books, so I'm still at the same point. I've never read them. Oh, yeah. So I'm still at the same point uh, in Magician's Nephew that I've been in. That's the first, first one. one. Yeah. I haven't made it very far. Oh, my God. Well, I have to read Silencing the Past for Tracy's class, so I'm kind of busy doing homework. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Sure. Yeah. Homework. <laughs> <laughs> any other questions? Nope. Do you have any questions or anything you want to say, Jamie, or plug or talk about? I mean, 
offhand i wasn't ready for that one uh if you're a gta or gsa at wayne state join the union uh, we're fighting for you and we're making good progress on a lot of things that are important for graduate student workers and if you're not a gsa or gta at wayne state join a different union uh because that's kind of how workers get uh power in this country i was gonna ask a I question think... actually related to that. yeah when you talked to the one thing i never have fully like grasped is like so you said that one woman that you discovered was part of the UAW, but it was like mm-hmm. a, a section of the UAW for like freelance writers or something. Yeah. So like, how, do, how does that work? Like, oh my God, I have the funny, I can't tell you who said it because it, I don't want to reveal their identity, but it's a union archivist. And they were like, the UAW is like the slut of archives. They'll unionize oh. anybody. <laughs> that's a good, that's I won't say who I think that is, but I'm imagining someone, and they are great. Uh, But yeah, kind of. The UAW, like, in the 1960s, 1970s, and going into the 1980s, is like the U.S. was deindustrializing. The UAW had, like, all of this organizational power, and they realized there were a lot of workers who weren't unionized that they could unionize. Mm. One, to keep up members and make sure that, like, they didn't decline because their their bargaining size was diminishing. But also, it's for the benefit of the fact that a lot of workers didn't have basic things like health care, you know, COLA. Um, and so, like, the UAW started organizing, uh, like, newspaper writers. Um, actually, the first labor contract in American history that provided for same-sex partnership benefits was negotiated in 1981. It was a newspaper in New York City called The Village Voice. Mm. And the UAW organized them and, and got them that victory in their first contract. But they also, the UAW organizes uh, state employees. They have a local local 6,000 for state workers. And yeah, the National Writers Union was one of these uh, efforts that it was founded before it joined the UAW and then it eventually affiliated with them. Okay. And it was basically like any writer who didn't have like a solid, like renew every three years contract who's doing like per uh, per assignment labor. Can we make an organization that can represent them on a on a case by case basis? And so like initially, a lot of people were basically thinking like, I don't think that's possible if you're doing like, you know, individual labor, you don't get a union. And the UAW was one of these organizations that basically said, yeah, if you saddle up with us, we'll give you office space, we'll fund you, we'll help you out. And the National Writers Union grew because of that and was able to advocate for um, writers' rights a lot more effectively because of it. Wow. Fascinating. See? We just learn something new every day. And I, I've just been curious because, like, I, you know, I don't study labor, but obviously going to Wayne State and going to the Ruther, you're exposed to it. So it was just something that I just never really looked into more. So... Glad I asked. Glad Jay. The uh, the graduate student workers at Harvard actually, who just successfully unionized and won healthcare there, yeah. um, they were organized by the UAW. Oh, cool. Yeah, I remember so. all the stuff about that online. Quite the story. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Jamie. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always love talking to you. <laughs> All right. You're great. I miss in-person classes. I miss seeing people. This pandemic has been horrible. Yeah, we're we're doing our best. We're working try to bring everyone together as much as possible. All right.